Okay, well, thank you very much, everyone, for that talk and for your book. Uh, you started with an image of a chilling image of disaster, so I thought I'd just leave this image of uh, coal atoll up uh, behind me. I'll come to this later on. It's kind of counterpoint to the Arctic. Or maybe it's an argument about Arctic exceptionalism or, or not, but we might discuss that. I'm just simply going to say what I think is important about Adriana's book, or some of the things that I think is important about Adriana's book. Uh, to begin with, and you've heard a little bit about it from her, uh, quite generally. And then in the second part, what I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about my own work on uh, the visual archive of exploration, a couple of Arctic examples uh, snuck in there. Um, and in a way, I mean, you started with William Smythe's oil painting, that's kind of set piece, HMS Terror, stuck in the ice. I think it's the same William Smythe who does lots of drawings and sketches, and it's really the drawings and the sketches uh, that I'm going to be talking about, uh, that I won't show you once my smile. The themes of Adriana's book are of interest to lots of disciplines. Uh, I'm a geographer, historians are interested in which uh, archaeologists will be interested in them, and art historians. Uh, she goes beyond uh, generic definitions of travel writing. She wants us, as she said, to think about exploration knowledge as produced through practices of inscription on manuscript in print. Uh, but also on wood, metal and stone. She gives an example of that. And she wants us to think about the Arctic as a dynamic landscape uh, uh, in which these inscriptions take hold. I think the book uh, is interesting in, in that respect. It also works against the grain, as uh, she hinted, of much literary scholarship on Arctic print culture by questioning common assumptions about authorship, narrative and chronology. So for her, authorship, it, she describes as an aggregate practice uh, dominated in the early 19th century moment by what she calls the Murray Polar Print Nexus, a phrase that I'm sure will stay with us uh, in the literature for a while, uh, linking institutes of government uh, with those of publishing. And from that nexus emerges not only the, the, the Arctic exploration narratives that she didn't want to talk about uh, just now, but also the reassembling of the texts of travellers that she did talk about in earlier eras in 16th, 17th and 18th centuries into a kind of tradition or what you describe as a teleological narrative culminating apparently in the mid-Victorians. So for this reason, as she's done in her talk, Adriana tells the story backwards, starting with the Franklin relics, moving back into the moment in which the Murray Polar Print Nexus was established, further back into the Hudson's Bay Company she's talked about, and further back to the age of Frobisher and, and the company of Cathay. The point of this history in reverse, or what she calls her recursive approach, is to try and unpick and unsettle the cumulative uh, nationalist and individualistic version of exploration history that she's explained she wants to get away from, that was installed by Barrow and the Victorians, and to show us, therefore, how distinctive and peculiar the age of Franklin actually was. Now, in that process, she draws particular attention to the spatial and the archaeological aspects of these histories, and that would interest me as a, as, as a geographer in particular. And this emphasis contrasts with, with what others have said about the Imperial Archive or the centre of calculation, or rather she disperses these terms, spatialises them perhaps, so that the Arctic landscape itself becomes an archive, and supposedly immutable mobiles-like objects become all too mutable. There's also obviously a concern with Arctic places, and she understands uh, these places are socially dynamic, as she's hinted at just now, and multiply inscribed what Dory Massey, she quotes, calls a simultaneity of stories told so far. 
that's a definite, the masses definition of place but at the same time she sets out uh, uh, a critique of what she calls arctic exceptionalism so, so, so the idea that she wants to insta- reinstall uh, arctic writings in the history of science, history of literature etc etc now balancing these two things uh, this sense of, 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 of the Arctic not being an exceptional place, but also being a particular place, is quite a challenge and quite complicated. Now, the Franklin disaster is a catastrophic demonstration of the fact that, that Barrow's boys, as they've been called, and their successors at the Admiralty weren't the masters of all they surveyed. But they did leave this lasting legacy that Adriana's book is trying to unsettle, and in particular the way that the history of Arctic exploration is understood and, and written about. We, seem, we do seem in, in the history of exploration more generally, but that's particularly in relation to the Arctic, to be caught within circles that we keep going round. Um, Franklin himself has been reinterpreted over the years, and there's a, a, a recent book by Andrew Lambert that presents him in new ways as a, as a man of science rather than a sensation-seeking discovery, but a discoverer. But to me, that, that's simply moving around the same oppositions in a way that the 19th century um, gave us. So I think this book is really important because it challenges us to rethink the categories we use, the ways we approach the history of exploration, and that challenge goes far wider than even the Arctic. Um, I think we could draw parallels between the ways in which um, 19th century writers about the exploration of Africa, perhaps South America, perhaps the Pacific, uh, uh, retold the story of African travels and trade, for example, in the 18th and the 17th centuries, uh, in a parallel way, actually, to uh, what Adriana's talked about for the Arctic. I mentioned just one more general point, then I'll talk about my own work and how I think it may parallel, in some respects, what Adriana's doing. Um, One more general point is about this polar print uh, nexus. And I think here I would like to say that I think there's a, a risk of overstating the power of that institutional nexus. I don't think Adriana's book does that, but I think the phrase, the, the concept, could, could lead to that conclusion. Um, I think the same thing could be said, Adriana's emphasis on, on Murray in particular, uh, the publisher of these quarto exploration volumes, these very expensive uh, exploration narratives. Um, he looms very large in the history of travel publishing in the 19th century. Murray's is the focus of a, of a book co-authored by my colleague Ennis Kieran and Charles Withers at Edinburgh. Uh, and that book is, is, uh, was published last year called Travels into Print, Exploration, Writing and Publishing with John Murray. And as it suggests, it's obsessed by Murray. Now, um, the parallels and differences between the Kieran and Withers and Bell book and Adriana's book would be an interesting seminar discussion to have. Maybe Adriana might be drawn on some of that later on. But I think in, in some ways this point I'm making about Murray applies to both, to both books. And that is, the point basically is, how can we think about the dynamism and the complexity and the heterogeneity of the market for, uh, for, pub, for writing about exploration and travel in the middle of the century? What is the relationship between Murray's publishing and the whole sort of ecosystem of publishing about travel, particularly after 1830. And I would draw an analogy here that seeing that market or what I've just described as that ecosystem of publishing about travel and exploration, seeing that market through the eyes of Murray, as it were, is like talking about 19th century religion merely from the vantage uh, point of the Church of England. 
So in other words, it, Murray's a kind of established church of travel publishing, in a way. And we got to look at all the different currents and eddies and uh, non-conformist uh, publishers uh, to make sense of Murray's position in that market. So I think we do have to remember that it is a market, and we do have to think about all the, the changes of audiences and readerships that people like Jim, Jim Secord have written about uh, in particular. Um, I'm thinking here also of the work of Janice Cavell, obviously, on Arctic publishing and the movement between books and periodicals and so on. Um, I'm thinking about the way texts were circulated, abridged, uh, authorised and unauthorised through these different circuits. And what, what's the place of Murray uh, in relation to those other publishing contexts? And if I may make also a plug for a PhD that's remained unpublished uh, a, a few years ago at Royal Holloway, uh, by someone called Louise Henderson, who published a, a very focused PhD thesis, uh, sorry, wrote a very focused PhD thesis on geographical publishing in the 1840s and 50s. Uh, and what she did there was to look at very different publishing outfits. Murray was part of it, but also looking at Macmillan, also looking at periodical publishing, and so on, and try and talk about this as a kind of system. And that's by, by Louise um, Henderson. Okay, now let me return to the second part of what I wanted to say was about my own work, a little bit about my own work and how it might fit in with the kind of framework that um, Adriana has, has talked about. I think the, her use of the concept of inscri- inscriptions really is very helpful, obviously, to begin to think about uh, the visual archive, especially the role of drawing and sketching uh, in the kind of memory work done by travellers uh, and publishers and uh, curators. I'm particularly myself interested in uh, what an art historian, Jeff Quilly, has called the graphic reenactment of earlier voyages and travels, such as those of Cook, incidentally. But that reenactment in in the graphic mode or through drawing and through sketching. And the way that was a kind of self-referential or the reverential construction of a tradition of naval image making, which linked the Victorians uh, to, in particular, the age of Cook. Now, in public and political terms, Victorian historians, late Victorian historians especially, think we know what this means. So that, if I give you an image, in 1874, the bust of Franklin is plonked on the front of the new colonial office buildings in Whitehall, and it joins uh, Cook, Wilberforce, and Livingstone, so very recently, uh, being, uh, being, uh, had, a, had his funeral in Westminster Abbey. So that's it. On the facade of the colonial office... There's a kind of tradition of these worthies, more than naval worthies, imperial worthies, sort of humanitarian face of empire. We might be talking about that, but actually we're talking about something, other things, uh, more than simply the invention of tradition by the state. Uh, This is about the remaking of memory. Uh, Sometimes uh, drawing practices are part of that on the edge of empire as well as its heart. And then their reassembly of these images in, in various ways, in archives and in print sometimes, but in exhibitions and in albums. And that's what I've been working on, in particular, uh, the naval albums of, of this retired uh, naval officer who travelled in the 1850s and 60s, went to the Arctic, uh, but also all around the Pacific. Now, what should, much of what Adriana says about the cultures of textual inscription in manuscript and print also applies in the context of visual practice. <coughs> For example, looking explicitly at naval sketching as a form of observation means exactly as she argues in the case of written journals that we need to take uh, the sociality of observation uh, seriously. 
uh, think of it not just as, as an individual sort of exercise. Observations are made to be shared, compared, and corrected. Skills are there to be taught, to be learned, uh, and uh, rewarded. And this is a particularly nice example. The, the left-hand side is a, uh, is, is a chart that's been cut out from a sketchbook, or perhaps it's original, an original chart, put in the page of an album, and on the top you have the landscape view. So you have these two modes of, of depiction of, in this case, uh, the Bering Strait and the track of the HMS Aquatrack going up to Barrow all the way beyond uh, the Bering Strait. This is one of the ships that's going to service one of the ships that's looking for Franklin, so it's all part of the same story. But in this case, this is from these naval albums at the Royal Geographical Society, but here's another sketch. It's exactly the same, exactly the same ship, exactly the same observations drawn by a Royal Marine in a sketchbook at the National Maritime Museum uh, today. And this tells us exactly that this, is, this process of observation of measurement, of mapping, of charting, is a social one, a shared one. So this is aggregate authorship par, par excellence, perhaps. Uh, another example of ag- aggregate authorship in the making of charts and drawing of coastline space, this, this celebrated one, very specific one, is reproduced in Adriana's book, and it's from this engraving from uh, John Ross's 1835 Arctic Narrative And Adriana, I think, very carefully and skillfully describes this as a set piece, which I think is a wonderful phrase, because it's an image that stages a moment of uh, encounter in a particular way, presenting it to enlightened readers as a scene of polite exchange of knowledge between the Inuit and the British officers. But it is a kind of stage set here. Um, but the important point she makes is these, this is a very particular form and presentation of this exchange but in earlier eras there are all kinds of other exchanges that don't get represented in this way or perhaps don't even get represented in, in, uh, in text at all uh, and some of those earlier sections of the book uh, looking, looking at those earlier periods I found really, really very interesting now we can find many different uh, traces of uh, sociality, what I've called sociality and exchange in, in these forms the logbook, the sketch, the album uh, I've done some work with Luciana Martins that was mentioned kindly earlier on uh, on the logbooks of John Septimus Rowe, who was a midshipman who went to Australia uh, in the in the in the uh, post-Napoleonic uh, era, and everything we know about Rowe's drawings shows how far their making was regulated institutionally and shared socially. Again, I think echoing some of the themes in, in Adriana's book. But I want to make just two points, one quite specific. In this case, and I think it's the Arctic examples that you give in, in your book, the, there are two government departments sponsoring these expeditions, the Colonial Office and the Admiralty. And in this case, this mapmaker and drawer, who's learning how to draw effectively on the route out to Australia, hence uh, stopping off at Rio, um, is having to make two sets of charts, to send one to the Colonial Office, one to the it does rather raise the question about the sort of fragmentation of the imperial state. So I think we need to think about the fact that the imperial state itself is not monolithic. But the second point is much more general and is about what we might do with um, such archives um, today, and in particular when it comes to thinking about cultural interaction and exchange uh, uh, with such expeditions. Uh, Lucena Martins and I were very keen to talk about the... Um, the effect of the cultural work in image making, the fact that image making was 
a job of work. And we were trying to get away from exactly what Adriana's talked about in relation to manuscripts and print, thinking about manuscripts as merely preparatory to print, and we were thinking about uh, 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 the work, or the things that are lost when you do that. But we're also interested in the uses of drawing in the context of thinking about cultural encounter, and Hussein is now thinking about those things in relation to Amazonia, incidentally. But the general question is, how are these kinds of archives of drawings and sketches and the correspondence that goes with them valued uh, today? Well, this is how we encountered Rose letters, as opposed to his logbooks, on microfilm, actually. You can get the lovely sort of streaks down of the microfilm image there, reproduced nicely by History Workshop Journal in that, in that image. But this is a letter that Rose writing to his father in 1821, and telling the story of this, of this uh, violent uh, encounter with an Aboriginal group uh, in Southwest Australia, and um, it's pierced there by his sketch of this of this um, stone arrow uh, head right through the middle. Actually, the little text here says these te- teeth and the points very sharp. And he draws them. I think I made this point to some of you before. This is like kind of almost like a, a coastline, isn't it? But there's something about that image that's just really incredible in thinking about. Uh, uh, Aboriginal presence in this particular narrative and what, what we might, what we might uh, do with it. Now these letters actually admit, ha, ha, have been sold by the family since we wrote, wrote this paper to an intermediary and then sold to the State Library of New Wales for $1 million. And the spokesman for that library recently described them as offering, quote, first-hand accounts of a nation in its infancy, unquote. Now... That may be the case, or not, but it does sound uncomfortably close to the uh, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who we heard a little bit about earlier on, and his claim that Franklin ships, quote, laid the foundations of Canada's Arctic sovereignty. Which is the more absurd (laughs) statement, really. But might there be other stories to tell? We hope so, even in the archives of uh, a naval surveyor. So going back to my um, album maker and sketcher, Linton Palmer, I've been using his sketches of, his topographical sketches, the northwest coast of uh, North America. This is Fort Victoria. These are some classical sort of naval surveying views from a fort and to the fort. But they also include elements of indigenous habitation, culture and economy, fishing stations and the like. He also sketched people, and I've just put Adriana really here, some of his Arctic sketches of um, people, uh, implements and artefacts uh, on his way up. And I think what he's doing here is, in a way, reenacting uh, the kind of sketch-making and image-making of, of Beachy on the Beachy voyage in particular, but earlier uh, naval expeditions as he's, as he's making it his way up the northwest coast and up to the Arctic. Now, I was fascinated... So I'm interested in the way those visual sketches and those materials might be reused today uh, and we could also be talking here about photographs we could be talking about artefacts as well and the way they've been assembled in the past the way they may be reassembled uh, today and I was very fascinated when I went to see uh, some archives at the Royal British Columbia Museum in Victoria to talk about some of the sketches of the settlement on the northwest coast that the ways in which such sketches and photographs and maps were being used uh, in the making of a new public history of First Nations settlement, in this case in, in uh, Vancouver Island in, in British Columbia. So in this context, a naval sketch of a coastline, a burial site of individuals, objects and material culture may acquire then new 
new meanings. And it was very interesting to me that this work was being coordinated by a curator who was an archaeologist, Grant Keddy, and more than that, a public archaeologist. So I think that, that theme of the sort of... I mean, in a way, I could think of Adriana as a kind of archaeologist of this, of this Franklin era and its material uh, legacies. Uh, and here we see another archaeologist. So, in one view, let me finish off then by generally reflecting on this. In one view, um, the archives of exploration, say the visual materials I've been talking about, perhaps the artefacts and texts that Adriana talks about, are no more than colonial relics. And this word relic is so important in, in, in her book, of course. But if they are relics, then Adriana asks us to consider the ways in which they've actually been made and remade by a much greater cast of characters than are usually acknowledged. So getting away from, if you like, the heroic uh, 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 leaders of these expeditions. She asks how they've been mobilised and arranged for public consumption, in, in, in this case of a sort of grand narrative of, of naval uh, expedition-making, uh, connecting right back to the 16th century to the 19th century. And she also asks how they might be reassembled for different purposes in the future. So I think that even though her book takes its cue from, from a disaster, not just any disaster, but the single biggest disaster in the history of British exploration, the book is fundamentally an optimistic one uh, because it shows that the history of exploration consists of more than simply the fantasies of explorers, their patrons and supporters. Thank you.